So today we are talking about Bury My Heart at Wounded Knee, a 2007 HBO TV movie. And this is kind of from that era where we always talk about like, you know, Netflix movies now are considered like on par with regular movies and they get Oscar nominations and all those kinds of things. But it seems like pre that Netflix internet revolution there that TV movies were just that, just TV movies. Uh, that's kind of where they ended. And it, was, it was, seemed like there was more of a distinction there. Even HBO movies. Right, right. Which maybe would be held at, in maybe like one rung higher than something like a Hallmark movie <laughs> or just like your typical TV movie is still was not, you know, on par prestige wise with like an actual cinema release movie. Right, right. And, and if like now we've kind of crossed that threshold and there's 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 little to no difference. And probably just says, you know, everything switches from film to digital and all that and budgets. Is that why there were no Oscar noms for this movie? It was yeah, it wouldn't be eligible. Okay, if you have to have you still you still to this day you have to have a theatrical release, but and Netflix movies right. just make a point to have those theatrical releases. And and as as I've asked before, probably on our, the other podcasts, is like I don't understand why HBO was never releasing their stuff theatrically. I don't know. I mean, not that this movie necessarily deserved any Oscar oh, nominations. No, anyway. right. <laughs> <laughs> but usually. Something like this, if it was a theatrical release, would get some sort, like, maybe throw Anna Paquin a token supporting actress. Something. Nom or something, yeah. Yeah, I I do have to say, I don't have to So, I, I, uh, again, this is a movie I had not heard of. It kind of even came late to our list. As we, our list is kind of continually evolving, and we're kind of, it's almost like a living list that we're building as we kind of, Wiley E. Coyote, the trailer tracks out in front of us as, as we go here. Yeah, exactly. But, uh... Yeah, so I kind of I didn't have high hopes for this, but HBO does do quality stuff, and uh, I was not a fan of this. I was bored. I, I don't know how, where you fell on this. Oh yeah, I, dude, it was so it was so boring, and it seems so like sermony and like heavy handed in a lot of the a lot of the message. And then apparently too, and this isn't even something that I necessarily caught while I was watching it, but like seeing reviews of it after I watched it where they were talking about how it's all supposed to be an allegory for Iraq. Oh. Because this what? was it was because it came out in 2007. Okay. And so and I'm just like, "Oh, I didn't I didn't get that. I guess you oh the, oh the okay that the natives are the Iraqi people." Right. Exactly. The whole like we need to civilize them and assimilate them and, you know, basically help them get over themselves type thing. Mm. I didn't necessarily see that, and I would definitely would not have noticed that if it wasn't pointed out to me. Yeah, I don't but see it. That yeah. definitely doesn't work. No, exactly, it definitely doesn't work. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I, I didn't, I didn't really like it. I, I knew going in that it was a seventy-eight percent on Rotten Tomatoes. I so that that did, I think, give me a false sense of how good it would be because I've seen seventy-eights that I really like. Right, but it is just. Yeah, and no critic score, uh, which I, I'm not sure exactly why right. that is either. Yeah, seventy eight percent is pretty high. Yeah, audience only, and then the, yeah, there's only three critics reviews for this movie um, on Rotten Tomatoes. And so it, it did get multiple Emmy nominations, however, and won some Emmys, and that even kind of surprised me. That because I just again, it's I just don't consider it a very quality production. I the the best thing I would say is I do think it's well cast, like. The people they chose to put in the movie, good job. And some of the shots are kind of cool. There's some good drone footage kind of up above, which isn't bad for 2007. Yeah. But that's kind of where it ends. Like, 
my biggest note was the whole thing feels like, okay, so you know how if they're doing uh, a made-for-TV documentary, we'll do kind of a ha- kind of lame reenactment of certain scenes of yes. things that actually happen? Yes, Okay. It's like the whole movie was just those cutscenes. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. So not great. <laughs> yeah. And yeah, just, just how they structured things and... Like, so obviously it's it is it also building up to the Wounded Knee Massacre. We start in 1876, which is right on. Actually, basically they kind of do an opening text thing, just talking about how obviously life is tough on the reservations, and obviously it was. And we're not trying to slight all the events that are depicted in this film. Just the film itself. Let's be clear. Oh yeah. And uh, so we kind of get the Battle of Little Bighorn, and then it ultimately leads to the 1890. This movie takes place over a couple decades the 1890 massacre at Wounded Knee. And even then, when you build up this entire show to the massacre at Wounded Knee, they then skip over it at the last minute to then talk about it in flashback via the victims that our doctor character is treating. It's like, wait, what? <laughs> You're building up to right. the titular event and don't don't actually show it in, in, until you get to a flashback at the end. What are we doing? That has to be a budget limitation thing, right? Like well, they maybe like you But no, but they still show it. They still flash back to the events. I'm saying just do it in chronological <sighs> order. Yeah. And I'm not, and I'm not against flashback, but then start with the doctor start the whole thing with the doctor treating these people. So anyway, the structure of this whole thing, maybe that's the writer in me, but the structure of this is just an absolute mess. Yeah. And was this originally is this something where they took multiple episodes of something and then put them together to make a movie? Kind of like the uh, oh, JV Crockett, the King stuff? of the Wild Frontier, or or was this made to be one thing? Because I, it was so annoying to me. You're watching the movie and then they like intercut it with the little like like old timey sepia tone photos of the actors as whatever characters they are, and they just kind of like throw those in. Oh. And it's like that was weird. You're right. That really seemed to break it up, and I didn't like that. I guess then it would be called a limited series, not a TV movie. And I, I didn't see anything. I mean, I almost hope you're right because that would almost give it more of a pass. But I don't think that's the case. It says TV movie on IMDb. I, I think it would say like limited series or something if it had been. Uh, yeah it it was almost like a. You know, it, it, like they were trying to do like a like a Quentin Tarantino, you know, chapter one, chapter two thing, but like with the people. But it was, I don't know. It just, yeah, it was to me. It was just annoying because it was like you, it, the story, whatever you were watching, would just stop dead in his tracks, and then it's like here's Anna Paquin as her character, like you know, some photos like fade in and out, and then we're just back to the story. It's like that. Wh- why did we have to do that? <laughs> And it, it was funny too is when you sit down to watch something, and again, I didn't have high expectations, but I did not have low expectations. I just was just like, oh, I'm kind of curious to watch this movie about an important historical event that not a lot of people know about. Yeah. You, and you're kind of giving it, obviously, a benefit of the doubt kind of throughout. And then it's almost like you almost want to track your own journey in your mind as that, that, that benefit of the doubt slips away and you go from, yeah. this could still be good. Huh. Oh, mm, yeah, I don't like this. <laughs> like, over the yeah, course, I, like, I don't know how long hour. it took for you. It, yeah. it was not. It was not very long for me. Uh, it was. It, it probably took a good half hour for it before it completely lost me. Okay, I, I was gonna say it, definitely within the first thirty minutes, maybe okay. even the first twenty minutes. I was like, <laughs> uh, I think I'm. I think I'm done with this movie. And then right. I was like, Oh, I still have like almost two hours to go. <laughs> right, and it's, it's not even that it's 
bad bad it's just that it's boring and not good <laughs> it's so slow right right yeah it's just yeah so boring. anyway okay we've probably beat it to death successfully <laughs> now <laughs> now the context is kind of interesting here if you flash back i was gonna actually it, this was kind of the last thing i had in my notes but i think i want to start with it just to give some context for not necessarily this film but like so this this book that this film was based off of uh, came out in 1970 and it's kind of interesting if you look at how much I guess I'll say attention and Native American activism is kind of squeezed into a very small period if you look you, I mean I, I mean I didn't do a deep dive obviously but just from like 1970 when this book came out through 1973 a lot was going on that's I basically kind of I, I I would say again I we weren't around yet but like it seems like there was an elevated level of awareness uh, around Native American treatment and rights at this time. So I asked my mom about this book and she's like, oh yeah, that was a big deal when it came out. Now she was also a a junior in high school and it went in, and said she was kind of like shocked that like how have we never heard about this before? Like this was not taught in history class. We don't hear about this kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. And then this book mm-hmm. was a big deal when it came out um and then you have i'm not going to necessarily go in order here but then you also have the wounded knee incident in 1973 where native activists kind of took over i think it was the pine ridge reservation which we see in the film because they wanted to they basically chose the site of the wounded knee massacre for this kind of demonstration and protest of uh, government treatment of natives at that time in the 1970s, it was, this wasn't like a call, you know, a call to remember the past. It was like, no, we're still to this day having our rights trampled upon and being treated, you know, poorly by the government. Mm-hmm. And uh, the, the National Guard has to come in. And there's basically this, there's actually an enemy and two people killed as part of this altercation oh, wow. of a wounded, wounded in the incident in 73. Which then when I was reading about that, it reminded me of another one where you had the occupation of Alcatraz out in San Francisco, which lasted 19 months with Native native uh, activists taking over the pris- prison island. I think of, I've of- heard of that one. I don't know I don't know anything about the context of, of why they were there or, or what ended up happening, but I think I have a, that that's one insight that I at least have heard of. Okay, okay. And, and again, I, and I don't know the details. Again, this the Native American stuff, we've talked about it every time we brought them up, that it's just beyond complicated and kind of i'm out of my element when we talk about all this stuff because there are just so many layers of uh but a simple version is the u.s has always and continues to this day treating native americans poorly and the last one i was going to mention is also this one i'm sure you've heard of as well also at the same time as the wounded knee massacre site incident in 1973 because it just lasted uh for a couple months there but in that couple month window was also when Marlon Brando refused to accept his Oscar for The Godfather and sent uh, Sasheen Littlefeather up to accept on his behalf. That was mm. while mm-hmm. the Wounded Knee thing in 73 was actively ongoing that that happened. Oh, okay. And I'm not saying they were even directly connected like he did that because that was going on because she's from a different tribe. She's from California. So she wasn't even part right. of the. So just the fact that Native issues seem to have been at the height of the public conversation in the early 70s from just kind of these multiple things from this book these multiple incidents to the marlon brando thing and i don't even know to what extent 
I think we need to ask some Native Americans, I guess, to what extent things have actually gotten better or it's just that no one's really speaking out. And we know these kind of tribes kind of continue to dwindle in the, in the decades since. I mean, this has been 50 years since, obviously, 1973. Yeah, and I, I feel like even, well, I don't know, maybe it's just because of the media that I consume, but I feel like it's almost making kind of a comeback. Mm. But again, maybe I'm just saying that because I watch so much Taylor Sheridan stuff. Oh, <laughs> because it's it's heavy. Well, it's heavily featured in a lot of his work. Okay, in Hell or High Water, they talk about a lot. The movie Wind River is basically entirely right. about okay. how hard life is on reservations. And then I I don't know if you've watched Yellowstone at all. No, but I mean it's like it's almost just as much about the struggle of the natives as it is about the main family, the Duttons. That's like a a, a huge a huge part of that show is, you know, life on the reservation, the struggles of the reservation, the way the them trying to, you know, make it in modern America and have their tribe be successful without completely, you know, quote unquote, selling out. It's a it's a it's a big and like important and ever present theme in that show. And from what I've heard, I haven't actually seen the prequel shows the 1883 and the 1923. But apparently it's the same or it's similar in in those shows as well. Is it as simple as modern media just doesn't cover this stuff because they don't care because they don't think it gets clicks? Because even when you had the, what was the oil pipeline stuff protest? Oh, it's like, uh, even, even those were, Keystone or, or yeah. uh, even those were being just peripherally covered in the media. But my understanding is there was actually massive protests going on up there and the media just didn't care. And so like it wasn't getting a lot of coverage because even like Shailene Woodley or whatever gets arrested up there and stuff. And it's like hardly even mentioned. And, and I don't know. I, I don't know enough about it because it's not really talked well, about. Well, I mean, it was it was in the media a lot when it was happening, but I feel like it just okay. kind of like they just kind of got squashed yeah, okay. and then and then kind of went away. Huh. Um, anyway, so back to back to today's story, we are going to kind of dwell. And again, it does give us some interesting characters here. But yeah, the, the plot of the film is kind of a mess. It really is just showing life in the Black Hills and just kind of dealing from we kind of start as we said with the battle of little bighorn and now the government is wanting to have its hands and all these things we specifically follow i mean the main guy we kind of follow is uh charles eastman uh his native name mm -hmm. is like uh ohiesa and uh he's a lakota guy and we should say too so we'll kind of use lakota dakota and sioux interchangeably in this film basically my understanding is lakota and dakota and some other tribes are under the sioux umbrella so i think that's correct lakota yes. are all also sioux right and so you, you when you're reading stuff uh it kind of gets uh confusing because they'll be talking about lakota and then talk about a sioux uprising and it's like so that's kind of that's kind of why uh, lakota and dakota are all yeah uh sioux which also retroactively Let's say that that we we also did that in uh, at least dances, dances with, wolves, with wolves, probably right. other probably other uh, movies too. But yeah, retroactively, that's that's <laughs> how it is. <laughs> yeah. So as far as plot points in the film, it really is just kind of debates over treaties and and stuff. So it's kind of it's it's pretty it is really boring. But we do want to talk about the stuff they actually talk about. So I think maybe the simplest way is 
skip the movie. Don't bother watching it. We're going to talk about some of the things here in real life that are brought up in the film. Is may that is may that we can just kind of put the movie to rest now. Yeah, I would say okay. I would say don't watch the movie. Just go like go find like a history book or like a book that someone wrote about you know some of these issues. Like that would actually probably be more interesting than watching the movie. Probably. I mean, again, I have not read it, but maybe the book "Bury My Heart at Wounded Knee." Oh, good point. Would not be a bad recommendation. <laughs> good point. Just. Just don't watch the movie. Okay, so let's. I'm gonna. I'll start with our main guy here, Charles Eastman, because actually, and again, just to show you how poor a job the movie is, because I didn't get this at all from watching the movie, but from like just reading on him about him online, I'm gonna throw him in the ring for most interesting people in American history. Like the the movie does not (laughs) make it seem that way. But this guy is actually kind of fascinating and had a very unique life, I would say, uh, as far as uh, Americans go. Uh, So first, his family background. So he was kind of mixed background, like he wasn't just 100% Sioux background. He had some uh, various European backgrounds uh, as well. But even like, so one of his grandfathers, obviously this is not Charles Eastman's life, but one of his grandfathers was a white guy, West Point grad, who was also an artist. And like, so his Charles Eastman's grandpa has paintings that are still hanging in the Senate today. Uh, he did paintings of like forts and stuff. Oh, that's cool. And then, and then that guy kind of got interested in the Native American world, married Charles Eastman's grandmother, they had a kid, but then when we basically got restationed, he just kind of said like, okay, well, this is over now. And just kind of <laughs> went on, married a white lady, and just kind of left behind the woman that becomes uh, Charles Eastman's mother and grandmother, respectively. So he was born in 1858 in Minnesota Territory. It wasn't a state yet. He was, uh, Charles was the youngest of five children, and his mom died uh, giving birth to him. Um, And he kind of had just had a front row seat his whole life, uh, or from an early age, to the conflicts between the U.S. and the natives. So in 1862, uh, when he was just four years old, we get the Dakota War. basically aggrieved natives uh, started attacking white settlers in minnesota pretty violently so i I, one youtube video mentioned like i think around 800 settlers uh were killed by natives in minnesota so they call it a war but it was it was ultimately put down after just six weeks um the fighting went back and forth and a few hundred uh, dakota tribesmen were tried and convicted for their role in the uprising here with 38 ultimately being hanged at the same time lincoln kind of wanted to make sure we didn't just execute everyone who was peripherally associated only those who were like directly involved in instigating the violence or committing the violence sure they ended up doing a mass execution of 38 natives being hanged at the same time which is still at time of recording the largest (laughs) largest mass execution in u.s history to do 38 at once like they had like a gibbet with like they hang 38 guys at one time oh geez so and then uh charles was taken away by his uh grandmother again his mama died in childbirth and it doesn't look like sound like he saw his father for 15 years at least didn't live with his father for 15 years and we do kind of see that in the, f- the film in that we see a reuniting right we yeah. see his father comes back to kind of get him Right. But it had been 15 years, and he was four-ish when he left. So, yes, there was this reuniting, and his father had converted to Christianity and wanted him to get role in school. That all is true. 
Mm-hmm. But he's like 19 <laughs> when he comes back. Yeah, in in the movie, it makes it seem like he's like, he's like 14, probably. Yeah, yeah, like early teens, maybe. Yeah, he, because he then goes to school and he's like the same age as all like the young school kids, which is something that's actually that's something that like I often forget about when I think about like historical stuff is that there wasn't it wasn't like oh you're eight years old you're in third grade oh you're right you know 13 years old you're in eighth grade yeah that's like a pretty recent thing like back in the day you know you people of all ages even adults would be like in the schoolhouse learning abc's one two three right and so yeah he was at school for several and actually once his father got him in school he kind of never left he went from he went to like multiple local schools and then to college mm-hmm. and then to medical school kind of without stop, but he started at yeah. 19. So when he's in the classroom right. in the schoolhouse, he would have been like a 19 year old. Right. But did ultimately uh, take to it now. So then by the time he's, you know, it takes 12 years, obviously by the time he's then about 32, he's getting a medical degree from Boston university. So he took to the education for sure. And it was yeah. his dad that kind of got him started uh, with that. Um, and he is the first Native American person to become a licensed physician, like in West, you know, with a, from a Western American school kind of thing. I mean, obviously they. Oh, he was the first one. Yes. Okay. I was wondering when I'm watching the movie and they're talking about how he was a doctor, and I was like, man, that can't be common. Like, <laughs> yeah. That's like kind of groundbreaking for him. Like, I, I, I bet not many people at that time had done that. Well, apparently. That's true, because zero people at the time had done that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so he kind of starts uh, starts working as a doctor. He, he does move back out west. Of course, west is, you know, what is now South Dakota, the Dakota Territory at the time. Um, and he becomes a doctor for what is called the Bureau of Indian Affairs, uh, which does still exist today. It's just the government mm-hmm. agency. I think it's under underneath the umbrella of the Department of the Interior, and it handles just Native American issues uh, to this day. So he was a doctor for them, and we see him in the film uh, treating people on, on the reservation out there. And so, of course, then that puts him in position to be treating the victims of the massacre uh, of Wounded Knee. And then he does meet his wife out there. So I'll kind of just, I guess I'll go in and rope, uh, rope right into her. So Elaine Goodell... How do you say that? She was a teacher from Massachusetts. Um, her dad was a farmer, but also a poet. Uh, so he would like, you know, submit poems to local papers and stuff, even though he was farming. Um, but so both Elaine and her sister uh, got very early on into writing and they themselves were contributing to papers and magazines. She began teaching Native Americans out east, which led to her getting interested in then visiting reservations out west. And that's how she, too, ended up working as a teacher for the department or the Bureau of Indian Affairs. Um, and that's how she met Charles. So pretty pretty simple. She just had similar interests, ends up out there. They actually didn't get married until after the massacre, which I guess the movie doesn't necessarily dispute that. It just kind of, I don't know if it really even talks about when they get married. It just says they get married. I, I don't know. They do get married after the massacre. And most of their stories even kind of like afterwards. So uh, they had uh, six children together. So Charles is is known for his writings, which I don't know to what extent the film even showed him writing, but like he has books you you, know, you can go buy today. He's got fiction, nonfiction. He's got you know basically he's got a memoir. He's got stuff about uh, Native American legends. He's got fictional stuff. Lots of books that are available uh, to buy. He's actually a pretty successful writer, as well as uh, the physician. But it was Elaine that kind of encouraged him to write, and they were together for about thirty years before they uh, separated and. He, 
yeah, anyway, so a lot of people give her the credit that the reason we even have his works at all is because she was really pushing for him to the point that some people even say, yeah, they probably should be considered co-works because, like, she was the writer and not that she wrote his books necessarily, but she was the driving force. And then after they split, he never published another book. The only other thing I would say is we see in the film, Charles gets recruited to assign names to basically uh, assign white names, English names to the natives just for, for like a, for bureaucracy's sake, essentially. Like we we get really accused. We can't tell who's who or who owns what. We really just need to get everybody a white name. And they make a point of saying that it was in like, they flash forward to 1895, five years after the massacre, but that's not right. Like, so he did, he was assigned that task uh, by Teddy Roosevelt in 1903. So I'm kind of confused on why they just made that a different time. Probably because they wanted to make it included in the story somehow because of the way... Oh, how it ties in with the Dawes Act and stuff? The Dawes Act and because of the way that his own like name choosing was like a kind of a big deal at the beginning of the movie. Oh, true. They made a point of that. So thematically, they probably wanted to tie it in together. But you don't just want to have like just a random scene of him like 13 years later under a different president okay. it was a thematic choice that makes sense yeah yeah okay i get that you're right it does tie into the him being reluctant to choose his own white name and that was kind of a big sticking point yeah in the film and i didn't read anything about that but i also wouldn't be surprised i mean obviously the book is nonfiction, so i wouldn't be surprised if that is in there and just uh something that didn't come up in my research but i wouldn't say that wasn't necessarily a thing that bothered him because because honestly I didn't read his whole autobiography talking about his childhood. Maybe that's in there, and I just didn't. It just didn't show up on yeah. you know the Wikipedia page. That's essentially his life. Charles died of a heart attack in 1939. Um, Elaine died in 1953. But yeah, that's we get a good glimpse at their world for sure in the film. And there's not there's not that there's necessarily necessarily anything big that the film gets wrong. Oh, doesn't doesn't the film have her out there with her father? And, like, getting introduced to, like, that world out there? Or she just kind of... Who is she hanging out with when he kind of meets her? Or is there at some... It's at a speaking event, like, back east, isn't it? Oh, okay. It was so, back east. So it's always oh, kind of right after he graduated. So, they, yeah, they wouldn't have met out east. So that that's kind of wrong. I forget who... Inter- Actually, do they have... In the movie, don't they have Dawes be the one that introduces them? Yeah. I'm pretty sure it is. So that's weird. And which I can't imagine that's in the book then. That that seems all kinds of weird because that's basically just getting all these characters that do end up kind of interacting out in South Dakota. Although again, Dawes doesn't come up on Charles Eastman's Wikipedia page. So like I don't know what kind of if any working relationship they had, other than they were leaders out in that area, and I'm it you know, it stands to reason they would have met. But as far as working intimately together, I didn't read anything about that. I I didn't either. And I, I did see some stuff not specified, but mentioned in reviews of the movie that they're that they made up a lot of the Charles stuff, like just straight made it up. That's so weird when if it's a book's based on the one that's a nonfiction book, right, which is unfortunate because the real guy is so interesting. Number one, the book is nonfiction. So you, like you have actual source material to pull from that is historically accurate right so it just i don't know it it almost seems like a willful ignorance or a a, a willful bastardization of these people's life stories just to kind of try and make it fit together but then the worst part 
is it doesn't even work. Like, oh. it'd be one thing if you chopped up their life story. If they made and- a good movie, like Braveheart. Braveheart's right. still a good movie, but it just messes exactly. up Exactly. This did both. They made a bad movie while also messing up the history. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's... Uh, I don't know. Okay, so wh- why don't you... And again, you can pick where you start, but I would almost suggest... Because Dawes is kind of the central white figure in this film and seems to be presented to us as a native, well, not, not activist, but like someone who at least in Congress is trying to do right by the natives more so than his compatriots. And maybe you could talk, that's how he's, that's how he's sold in the film. So why don't you talk about Dawes himself and then the act that bears his name, which I had heard, I've heard of that. I didn't really heard, heard of him and this incident and him being connected to all this stuff. But I definitely heard of the Dawes Act, because it's still around today, right? Yeah, so Dawes is kind of a, he's basically a career politician. He was born in 1816 in Massachusetts. Um, He was a Republican politician. He was in the Massachusetts House of Representatives. Kind of just did your standard climb the ladder thing. So he was in the state house. Then he got elected to the U.S. House of Representatives and was there for 18 years and then got elected to the Senate. So when we see him in the movie, he's he's Senator Dawes. And yeah, his the thing that he's most known for is the Dawes Act, which was, historians now look back and say misguided attempt, but basically just attempting to peacefully assimilate Native Americans into American society, into like the American culture. Well, so like, how does how do reservations? Do they do the government consider you living on a reservation with government aid? Is that assimilation, or is that the opposite of assimilation? I'm so I'm kind of confused on how they perceived it. Well, that it was kind of like for lack of a better option. But what he wanted to do specifically was all right. Instead of just like shoving these people onto reservations, which isn't making anyone happy because it's like they're kind of a it's kind of a thorn in the side of the U.S. government. Because they're just like, have these people on these reservations that they have to deal with. But then it's also like, the natives don't want to be there either. So his idea was, well, let's just get them all their own land. We'll get them all their own parcels of land. Make them all farmers. And just like, basically turn them all into settlers. Just like all the white settlers are moving out. And then that way everyone can just be the same. And everyone can just stop fighting. Because they'll all just have their own farms. But then obviously you run into issues because the natives are saying, we don't want to be agrarian. We don't want to be farmers. Right. We follow the bison. We want to be what we've always been. Right. We want to just like keep doing our own thing like we've always done on this land that we've always had that, by the way, you told us we could keep. Right. And he's saying, well, that's not going to work for us. <laughs> <laughs> So we're just gonna, you know, we're we're chopping up your lands, and you guys get you you're all getting your own farms. Um, and if you don't want to farm, basically, the speech that uh, that J.K. Simmons gives to uh, Sitting Bull, well, if you don't want your farm, you can have your rations, and if you don't take your rations, then I guess you just starve. Like that's those are your options. So Dawes is the guy coming in saying. Hey, I'm the one giving you the best bad deal. Exactly. Yeah. You're getting a bad deal, but I'm the guy that's going to make sure you get the best bad deal we can give you. <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> and then the natives say, well, n- number one, that's a bad deal. But also, 
like the railroad companies seem to be getting a pretty sweet deal out of this. Uh-huh, uh-huh. And so that's kind of like adding insult to injury is like we're you're telling us we're being forced to take the best bad deal, but then at the same time our lands are going to be basically just turned into to railroad lands and we know that this land isn't even that good for farming at all in the first place and the only reason it's valuable is because there's gold and you want the railroad to go through and so we're not get, we're not buying this whole oh this is in your best interest we're doing this for you routine right again and we should say yeah this is this is all set in the black hills uh it is all reservation land that was set aside that the government has decided to renege on the deal because gold was found by uh custer in 74 1874 right yeah which we did talk about yes in right right that's kind of why we didn't rehash it but then specifically we had mentioned the railroad stuff though yes they're trying to basically carve up these reservations into smaller reservations so the railroad can get through to the gold essentially right yeah and and this is also you still had you know the whole manifest destiny thing they were trying to stretch the u.s all the way to the west coast sea to shining sea and all that but yeah so the chopping up and fragmentation of the tribal lands led to the natives being scattered and disconnected it actually made it hard for them to farm because they were scattered and disconnected and they had limited economic opportunities outside of farming. Um, and like we said, this isn't even that great of farmland in the first place. Um, and so it just kind of led to this erosion of native culture for the tribes that were affected. So there, and their, their practices of this like communal living lifestyle where they fall the bite is basically irreparably destroyed and has continued to be that way even to today i mean they're obviously they're not you know following the the bison around montana or anything like it's <laughs> right, right that they just kind of did away with that we have talked about some of the natives we see in the film in the past we see sitting bull as a character prominent character in, in the film he's actually probably the other than charles eastman he's probably the native we see the most of yeah and we already talked about sitting bull when we did little big man but uh it was interesting to see some of the stuff in this film is a dramatized version of some of the things I I had mentioned in in my notes, and you know I don't need to rehash uh, what we said about Sitting Bull before. But I had one line in my notes from Little Big Man that said uh, he moved briefly to Canada, but that didn't go well. Yeah. Well, we see that in in the film, the the move to Canada and the decision to move up there, and how the Canadian government yep. is willing to have them if they don't go and encroach on their neighbors, and then they get accused of doing so, and. Chris, uh, sitting bull is basically saying like it was just these two guys let me i'll punish them right now in front of you and again i don't know to what extent those things specifically happened um but then also too i mentioned that sitting bull was ultimately killed in a uh a standoff when they go to arrest him and we see that in the film as well with the wounded knee massacre following not long after and they also mentioned crazy horse but i don't think we see him in the film he's just mentioned yeah they they talk about him and they yeah, because they, they talk about Little Bighorn, right? And then they talk about they talk about Crazy Horse being killed too. I think that's what it is. I think, yeah, yeah. I think one of the characters just mentioned something about Crazy Horse being killed or something like that. And again, we talked about too how Sitting Bull being again the term sellout wasn't used back then, but how other natives were very disappointed with how Sitting Bull was just kind of like taking the white man's money and almost being like a 
a puppet that they could take pictures with and kind of he was i mean to his from his point of view hey i'm making a buck off the white man being interested in all our stuff and i'm famous but then the natives are just like yeah dude have show some respect for your for yourself yeah. this this is not who we thought you were well it's similar to uh geronimo too i mean it's not it's mm. not even like a yeah, unique yeah. thing like it they yeah they basically turn themselves into like living museum exhibits to to get by right right and i mean, I, I see both sides but it. it's like i mean yeah I, you gotta do what you gotta do for you but then also yeah I get the other uh, others being upset with how he's compromising his integrity and his legacy. And then the other one we get, uh, he's kind of just seen throughout the film as this elderly tribal spokesman is Red Cloud. And mm-hmm. I don't remember if his name came up in previous episodes or not. I know we didn't talk about him in detail like we did a little bit with Sitting Bull and Crazy Horse. So I wanted to give a quick little uh, shout out to uh red cloud because i he actually should be mentioned in the same breath as sitting bull and crazy horse and it seems like he's the one that's kind of uh left out of that oh historical triumvirate of sorts so he had a lot of success fighting against the u.s military over the year again a lot of these fights that we see throughout the second half of the 19th century or middle of the 19th century it's kind of the last last gasp I and mean, we can go back to when the europeans first came over here in the 15 and 1600s and we talk about how you know the diseases wiped out 90 percent and all that and these slowly natives were pushed farther and farther west so you know there right. used to be natives in new hampshire and then they were pushed out like they're just kind of getting pushed where it was so basically this is the time period that's kind of the last gasp we talked about you know down in Texas with the Comanche down there and, you know, with, with the searchers. And basically this is just the last time ever that natives were trying to live. Like you said, like still going out and hunting bison and hunting game and living their old life that they were used to that all ended between the 1850s and 1880s, basically. Yeah. And, and even, even when they went onto the reservations, like this was kind of the last time that they were seen as not being American, like not being, you know, under the uh, authority of the American government. Because after this type, like, basically, once you hit the end of the 19th century, end of the 20th century, is like, all right, now, like, you got, you're all Americans. Right. Like, you, you can have your reservations and stuff, you know, all, all that, but, like, you're Americans, we got the Bureau of Indian Affairs, like, you're, this is our, this is our spot now. Right, because obviously there are still reservations today, but ev- everyone right. just assumes like, oh yeah, but they're they're Americans first, who are also on reservations. Is almost how it's seen, and it is legally a little weird. Like it is there there there's still issues. Are some like some straight well, and like even like how certain laws apply and don't apply to certain reservations, and like that stuff is weird. But it it is still. America, it's not like when you go onto a reservation, you got to like get your passport stamped because you're entering another country. Like that's right, you know right. Well, but that was never really the case. No, no, no. I, I I know, but I'm saying like they would have thought of themselves as a separate, okay, like a separate political entity, which today is still kind of the case, but like not not really. More of a local thing. What was the issue, man? And, and you're not going to know off the top of your head, I'm sure. But like, wasn't there an issue just a few years ago with like the Tulsa area of Oklahoma, basically like the Supreme Court or something ruled that like, oh yeah, they actually have way more autonomy on there than anyone actually ever recognized because the law weren't, was, I forget the details, but there's some issue. Oh, I'm not like, sure. Like the the tribe in that 
uh, northeastern Oklahoma is like actually in charge. I, I forget I forget how that played out, and I may have to make future me when I'm editing this do some research and put it in right here. <laughs> I, there, there was something going on there a few years ago. Okay, yeah. So future me, present me, whatever. Uh, jumping in here as I'm editing to chime in with what I was referring to just now. And of course, there are more layers to it than I initially realized. So first, in the summer of 2020, the Supreme Court did rule five to four that the tribes in Northeast Oklahoma do have priority over crimes involving only natives in that part of the state, and that the state of Oklahoma does actually not have jurisdiction over native-on-native crime for that area because some law on the books that had never actually been repealed. But this actually just led to a spike in federal prosecutions, and the state of Oklahoma asked the Supreme Court to reconsider, and they basically did kind of amend to narrow the scope of their ruling and kind of leave some wiggle room for the state of Oklahoma to concurrently prosecute some of these crimes. So that decision came last summer, 2022. But this is all still going back and forth here because just in summer 2023, a native got pulled over and was issued a speeding ticket in Tulsa and was able to appeal that up to the federal district court. Again, I don't know how all this stuff works, but basically he was able to get that speeding ticket thrown out by a federal court who, again, said that based on all these old deals and stuff that the state of Oklahoma or the city of Tulsa, I guess, specifically probably in this incidence, did not have the jurisdiction to issue him the citation in the first place. So this is all still kind of up in the air is where I'll leave it. Anyway, back to past me. But yeah, uh, so Red Cloud was born uh, in what is now Nebraska. He's actually uh, believed to be, or I guess you could, someone must have counted, the most photographed Native American of the 19th century. It's actually Red Cloud. Hmm. So we talked about, you know, Geronimo and City Bull, but apparently there are more pictures of Red Cloud. So like the opposite of Crazy Horse, who, who refused like, to be, right, adamant, right? Was adamant about never having his photo yeah, taken. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. He's, uh, again, there's so many different branches and tribes. He's Oglala uh, Lakota. So in 1866, so right after the Civil War, but before the gold is found in the Black Hills, uh, we get a two-year Red Clouds War. And again, as always, overly simplified version. The game had dried up in Siouxland. So basically they had signed a treaty. Hey, we're going to stay in this area. But then like, oh, well, there's nothing else to hunt. Well, screw the treaty then. We're going to go hunt in our neighbor's land because we got to hunt something. Yeah. So they kind of in, in, uh, encroached on Sioux, or sorry, they are the Sioux. They encroached on Crow land, and then they started fighting the Crow, and then the Crow aligned with the U.S. military. And so there's this two-year conflict. Again, it's called Red Clouds War, where Sioux and some of their buddies are fighting the Crow, who are aligned with the U.S. military. Right. And that's, man, this stuff gets so complicated. Oh, right. Stuff like that. And like, even like during the American Civil War, you had tribe, like on Native American sides. tribes fighting on both sides. And it's like, this stuff is just so, it's so complex. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And uh, during Red Cloud's War, uh, he actually handed the U.S. its uh, biggest defeat by Natives up to that time, eclipsed only later by the Battle of Little Bighorn. Mm -hmm. But before the Battle of Little Bighorn, the U.S. military's biggest defeat to natives was at the hands of Red Cloud. 
And then ultimately, again, they just don't have the numbers or the weapons. I mean, so a treaty uh, is signed in 1868. Red Cloud is just kind of is the leader of his people as they settle into reserve, reservation life. And then it's, so you think about that was from 68 on, which is why we when we see, you know, 10, 20 uh, years later in the film, he's this old respected leader of his tribe who everyone kind of turns to. And that's kind of how he lived out the rest of uh, rest of his life. And he was an outspoken opponent of the Dawes Act, which, again, we kind of show him in the film or they show him in the film being not happy with everything that's going on. Right. And then the quote attributed to Red Cloud uh, near the end of his life, because he did end up uh, living to his mid-80s. I think he was 86 or 87 when he died. He's uh, reported to have said, They made us many promises, more than I can remember, but they kept but one. They promised to take our land, and they took it. And that's, well, that's basically the sentiment that we see him right constantly right. saying in the movie too is like yes i like you we've had treaties like i've signed them right and and yet we're still losing we're still losing right which is kind of what we see in the film that you know dawes comes to them and it's like hey this is the last best offer last best bad offer you're gonna get yeah and some of them are like yeah all right whatever i guess is this the best we're gonna get i understand we be- hey we believe it's not gonna get any better so let's go ahead and right. sign and then they kind of do the, the sentiment shifts and uh red cloud's like I am done signing U.S. government treaties. I'm done with it. it it's meaningless. You guys right. do what you're going to do. We're not signing anything. And they kind of have this right. mass walkout. Yep. And then, yeah, and then the film, that's when we get the Wounded Knee Massacre, which, again, we haven't talked about too much other than saying it occurred in uh, uh, 1890. It was pretty much as depicted in the film. Again, I don't like how they did it with the whole flashback thing and showing, you know, like, the, you're building up to it, and then you cut to the victims, and then the victims are saying, what just happened? But it, it, it was the attempt to disarm. So because of these failed negotiations, tensions were high, and U.S. military was sent in to disarm a group of disgruntled Lakota. Like, that seems to be pretty much how it did start. And, and the possibility we, we see in the film, it's, uh, there's a deaf native like giving more resistance than the rest of them because he doesn't really understand as much what's going on. That's possible we don't know for sure that's how it played out but some accounts do seem to indicate that may be what happened however it happened firing started leaving 250 to 300 lakota dead and and, and 30 soldiers on the u.s side were also killed and it was you see you can see pictures online of the mass grave but even that was like going back after the fact it sounds like it was like really cold too because this is late december i think they even just kind of left everyone dead in the snow and frozen there for a while then go back later to throw them in the mass grave and it's just Mm. just horrible horrible incident and and there's not really much else to it because because what's the fallout well guess what the native americans never win so the fallout is essentially nothing right like there's no consequences it's not like i don't oh oh because talk about lack of consequences some of the soldiers on the u.s side were even given medals of honor as a result of of, yeah it says 20 20 medals of honor right so and yeah so there there is some debate i think you know maybe still to this day or i I didn't that was like well, one the natives obviously kind of find that offensive and you can see also too there are there are quote you know quotes about the event that kind of get into a little bit of the both side i guess just to give the other not to give the other side of it but just basically saying like actually i'm gonna pull up the quotes here there's a list of quotes of witnesses or people people from the time so mm-hmm. you know so here's you know uh, someone's saying, suddenly I heard a, a single shot from the direction of the troops, then three, 
or four, a few more, and immediately a volley. And at once came the general uh, rattle of rifle firing, then the Hotchkiss guns, which were like the more artillery-style guns that they had kind of right. out on the periphery of, of the camp. Yeah, just basically people talking about the chaos and the horrible, any kind of massacre is going to be chaotic like that. Of course, then you also get uh, some reverend basically saying it was the natives' fault. It says, uh, quote, The Indians were, in consequence, alarmed and suspicious. They had been led to believe that the true aim of the military was their extermination. The troops acted with the greatest kindness and prudence. In the Wounded Knee fight, the Indians fired first. The troops fired only when compelled to. I was between both, saw all, and know from an absolute knowledge that the whole affair, of the whole affair, whereof I say. So, almost kind of seems like he's saying they brought it on themselves kind of thing. Yeah, it's, man, it just, this stuff is so, it's so hard to even dissect what's true and what's not, especially, like, even from, like, quote-unquote eyewitnesses, just because of how the sentiments at the time would have been on both sides. Right, exactly. Like, there's, no one there would have been unbiased. <laughs> right. But, like... You know, at a certain point, too, like, and this kind of goes back to, I, I forget what movie it was, but I know we were talking about Northern Ireland mm. and talking about, like... Possibly Belfast, possibly, possibly When It Shakes the Barley, right? One of those. I, I don't yeah. even know. But, like, we we're talking about, like, you know, just keep in mind, like, some of these soldiers that are, like, taking place are, like, 18, 19-year-old kids. Right. And the only thing they have, you know, they're, like, they're scared... And they'd have a gun, and it's like once the shooting starts, like they're not gonna not shoot if they think that they're. So it's like once one shot happens, and then another shot, and then you know, and all of a sudden they're shooting in both directions, and it's like it. I don't know. These are com- these are complicated uh, issues. <laughs> yeah, here's here's a here's another quote from the U.S. side that just kind of talk about the chaos that you just mentioned. There, it says, uh, "quote I know the men did not aim deliberately, and they were greatly excited. I don't believe they saw their sights. Meaning, like he never right. never raised their never raised their uh, rifles up to their eyes. Yep, they fired rapidly, but it seemed to me only a few seconds till there was not a living thing before us: warriors, squaws, children, ponies, and dogs." went down before that unnamed fire. So that's even someone on the U.S. side kind of saying, like, uh, yeah, right. oops. And even even if, you know, even if none of those guys actually was aiming their gun at any one person, even if they're just like, oh, that's danger over there, I'm just, you know, I'm scared, so I'm bang, I'm going to shoot in that direction. You get 100 guys to do that, that's 100 rounds going downrange. Right, like you're saying. Every- they're going to hit stuff. Right. To, to me, that, that quote feels almost contrite. He's saying, hey, our, mente- our intent wasn't necessarily malicious, but we killed them all. Like, right. Because yeah. we all were shooting our guns in the same direction and there were people <laughs> right. standing over there. Right, 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 right. <laughs> yeah. Right. Not, non-malicious murderous intent. Ugh. Right. It's, it's, the, it's the whole thing. You're right. right. It's, it's the whole thing of, uh, you know, this bullet doesn't necessarily have your name on it. It's more of a to whom it may concern type deal. <laughs> uh that's an interesting way to put it yeah yeah <laughs> right but yeah yeah so that no no accountability i i don't even know what else to say oh i did i did leave off a couple of things because i said my notes were out of order so a couple more things on charles heisman sorry so specific i mentioned he was a writer i did mention something so uh another thing he may be the first native to do so obviously when he's writing about native american history he is writing about it from the native americans uh point of view that's obvious but he's also believed to be the first Native American writer to do so, to write American history from the Native point of view, written by a Native. He might have been the first to do that as well, which uh, 
seems kind of odd, I guess. You'd think that would have happened before. But the fact that he was writing in English and all those kinds of things, maybe. The other ones, so obviously he was a doctor and a writer. And we see in the film his political activism, which was accurate as well. He was obviously a leader for the tribes in this area just because of his uh, education and prestige and everything. But like, well, after this, he helped set up over 30 YMCA branches for natives because the YMCA actually goes back to 1844. And so like, okay, yeah, so 30, 30 branches of the YMCA. And if you go to the uh, Wikipedia page for the Boy Scouts of America, four founders are listed. One of them is Charles Eastman. He helped found the Boy Scouts. That's wild. Forgot to mention that kind of big one there. So you were also, did you have a little bit on, again, they, just because they come up briefly in the film, were you going to mention Grant or Sheridan that we kind of see briefly in the film and may kind of connect them? Uh, Sh- Sherman, not Sheridan. Oh, okay. Yeah, sorry. We sorry. We, we already talked about uh, Sheridan in um in old Chicago. Yes, this is Sherman. Oh, so this is, right. the, wait, is this the same Atlanta Sherman guy? This is, this is the oh, same. Yeah, the same okay, guy. Okay, okay. So I, I did, I'm. I, I knew that we had a lot of historical figures to talk about, so I didn't go super no, in-depth yeah, yeah. into this stuff. But, yeah, I just wanted to briefly talk about um, the two of them because just because they were shown um, at the beginning uh, beginning of the movie. Yeah, Ulysses S. Grant, born in uh, 1822, goes to West Point, where actually his name was changed, or he changed his name because of a administrative error. Um, his birth name is actually Hiram Ulysses Grant. Uh huh. But then the the representative that like wrote his appointment letter had his name wrong on there, and so that that he became Ulysses S. Grant when he went to West Point, uh, which huh. I thought was kind of interesting. He was a very accomplished horseman at West Point, like in equestrian competitions and stuff. Apparently, held a record in the high jump with horse, not not like track and field high <laughs> jump, but high jump with a horse. For like 25 years, his record stood. He's obviously very well known for his fighting during the Civil War, the capture of Fort Donelson, Battle of Shiloh. He's a Vicksburg, which we talked about a lot of that stuff during our uh, Civil War episodes. He was the one who accepted the surrender from Robert E. Lee at the Appomattox Courthouse on April 9th in 1865, and he became the general of the army. In 1868, he became the 18th president of the U.S., um, and we see him in his presidency in the movie. Uh, the main big accomplishments during during his presidency or, or the main issues uh, during his presidency was, number one, Reconstruction, which we kind of talked about. Um, and then uh, he fought a lot for, like, civil rights and suffrage for the newly freed slaves. Um, and he was the one who signed the 15th Amendment, giving African-American men the right to vote. Mm, okay. He, we, we also, I forget which, it might have been the Molly Maguires. I forget which episode it was where we were talking about the Panic of 1873 that was like basically the Great Depression before the Great Depression. That would make sense because Molly Maguires was set in 1876. Okay. So he was the president during that. There was actually two panics, one in 1873, one in 1893, but he was president during 1873. And actually a big contributor of that was uh ha- had something to do with Dawes as well. So in addition to the Dawes Act, another thing that Dawes is actually known for was the passage of the Sherman Silver Purchase Act of 1890, at, at which time Dawes was the chairman of the Senate Committee on Finance. 
And the goal was to increase the amount of silver in circulation, but it actually contributed to an economic crisis. And that's what the Panic of 1893 was. So Ulysses S. Grant's attitudes and actions regarding Native Americans were, I guess, in a word, complex. (laughs) He definitely had a, not necessarily a a negative view of Native Americans in general, but definitely didn't see them as like on the same level as, you know, what he would consider normal Americans. But he did want them, he did want to have them assimilate into American society. So his views were kind of shaped by his encounters with Native Americans during his early military career. So in the 1850s, he served in California and up in the Pacific Northwest, where he fought against numerous different tribes like the Rogue River Indians and the Sioux. And then as president, after the Civil War, he supported the what he called the peace policy, which he wanted to end hostilities. He didn't want there to be like open fighting between the U.S. government and the Indians. And so he initially was trying to do that through treaties and, and reservations. He was the one who signed the Dawes Act. Um, he was also a big supporter of sending Christian missionaries out into Indian country to try and convert them to mm. Christianity and to abandon their traditional ways of life and assimilate into American society. After his presidency, so when he left office in 1877, he went on a world tour. So he like basically got on a boat and just like traveled the world as hmm. a fun. It was kind of a kind of a dual purpose trip. It, he wanted to do that just as like a basically a massive vacation after he left office. Yeah, good for him. <laughs> he was yeah, but he was also a sort of like unofficial diplomat too. So he was going to these places and then it was like, oh, they, you know, this former American president is is making this world tour kind of establishing the United States as a as a world power, which to this point wasn't necessarily seen right, that way right. um, around the world. And then he uh, was writing his memoirs and he was diagnosed with throat cancer and died like five days after finishing his memoirs. His memoirs oh. were published posthumously, but he did actually finish writing them like right before he died. Um, and something that I thought was interesting, one of the reasons that he was writing his memoirs was for financial support, like financial reasons, because at the time there was no federal pension system. So, so even the former president like needs the money. Right. Yeah. If you were of you nowadays, if you're a congressman or a senator or a president and you get elected and then and then you leave office, you get a pension for the rest of your life. And, and they're not small either. A lot of politicians who are independently rich will, like, waive them. They'll forego the pension. But it is something that's offered to you. Back then, that wasn't the case. So after he left office, he was just unemployed. <laughs> he was just out of a right. job. Uh, huh. And so, yeah, so he, so he wrote his memoirs as a way to, like, make some money after he wasn't president anymore. And then, yeah, I did have a little bit on Sherman. So William Tecumseh Sherman, born in 1820 in Ohio. He also went to West Point, graduated in 1840, served in various different posts. He taught for a little while at West Point, actually left the Army in 1853, and then re-enlisted in 1861 when the Civil War kicked off. He was uh, initially a colonel when he first rejoined the Army, and then after showing some strategic prowess during the uh, First Battle of Bull Run, 
He was promoted to Brigadier General. He had command of the Army of Tennessee and was the leader of Union forces that forced uh, the Vicksburg surrender in 1863. He is most known for his March to the Sea, a total war campaign uh, where he marched from Atlanta to Savannah and basically destroyed everything in his army's path, including civilian infrastructure. So they were, you know, tearing up rail lines, destroying factories, burning farms. Yeah, basically looting and pillaging the whole way. And that's kind of it's so it's he wasn't necessarily the first person to like to do total war, like people have been doing total war for thousands of years. But he definitely like brought it back in a big way. And then it also informed a lot of his military decisions when it came to the Indian Wars. So that's why he had such a why his his campaigns against the Indians after the Civil War were so devastating is because he brought that kind of total war mentality of, well, like, we can fight the enemy, but also we're going to make it harder for the enemy to fight us by doing stuff like burning all their villages and killing their women because they make more Indians and killing the children because they grow up to fight us and killing all the bison because that's what they eat. So that kind of scorched earth policy was first seen or popularized by him in the uh, Civil War, but also used uh, later on in the Western territories. So Sherman was also a proponent of uh, Indian assimilation into American culture. I think he kind of saw them as more of an annoyance than Grant did. So he basically saw them as a basically just a barrier to American expansion westward. He was a member of the Indian Peace Commission, which is actually the commission responsible for the Medicine Lodge Treaty that we mentioned mm. before, as well as the Treaty of Fort Laramie, which I believe we also mentioned in, I think it was Dances with Wolves. He didn't like draft these treaties or anything, but he was on the commission that, that drafted the treaties. When we get the uh, scene with the three of these men in the room together, that you kind of just described the vibe there. So we have a scene with Dawes, Grant, and... Sherman all together in a room and uh yeah I, I would say what you just described kind of fits with what we see in the film as far as uh Sherman's feelings towards the natives right yeah and it, it it is kind of that scene is good I don't know if that's if like that meeting or that scene is historically accurate but it definitely does a good job of illustrating how each of those three men yes felt about the quote-unquote Indian problem so Dawes is very much like we need to give these people the best deal possible. You know, let's get them land. Because they're let's, human. Yeah, yeah. Let's right. Let's get them. You know, let's get them to be self sufficient. Grant is like, I just want this problem to be like over with. I got enough stuff on my plate that I'm worrying about. Like, I don't really care how it gets done, but like, I'm trying to deal with Reconstruction. He had some like corruption scandals in his administration. He was trying to deal with. There was like economic problems. Like he was just like, it's just another thing, another issue. Like, please just like get it off my plate and away from me. And then Sherman was like, well, their options are become Americans or just die. <laughs> so he was a big proponent of bison eradication as both a way to make it easier to expand the railroad and also to make it harder for 
the Indian population to survive. He definitely had a belief that was actually probably the prevailing belief at the time among um, Americans in the superiority of the American society and the American military, um, and that it necessitated subjugating the native tribes. He advocated for destruction of native settlements and their resources. They wanted to deprive them of any ability to resist. Some of his notable campaigns included the Red River War in 1874. Despite his comfort with waging a total war, he did want a peaceful resolution. It's just that he thought that that peaceful resolution should be like just a subjugation of the natives and not actually like letting them exist how they how they wanted to. Right. But yeah, basically his attitudes towards Native Americans were basically marked by a belief in the necessity of subjugating and assimilating them. And it was all basically just to get them out of the way to remove that barrier to westward expansion because that was the ultimate goal. In his eyes, the ultimate goal of the United States was westward expansion. Get all the all the territory all the territory that the United States had purchased up to that point and even going further like all the way like through native territory all the way to California, you know, manifest destiny. And while Dawes was more of a like let's be nice and peaceful first, uh Sherman was the one who was more harsh and violent. The kind of person who you could see the massacre of Wounded Knee happening on his happening on his watch. Yes. Okay. Yes. So I think I would just want to finish with kind of not cleaning up our timeline, but just kind of putting everything thus far, not just with today's film, but that we've talked about recently in context with the timeline. Because when we, we talk about a movie, you know, one movie might be set in, you know, one day and another movie like this might take, the, uh, you know, place over the course of 15, 20 years. And so when we put them on our timeline, we kind of have to pick where to put movies but there's inevitable overlap as we're kind of talking about things so uh, i think coming off the civil war we're, we're pretty clear little big man we probably talked about a little bit too early because it does deal with the battle of little bighorn 1876 which is 11 years after the end of the civil war uh, but it does start a little bit before that old chicago was 1871 so about you know uh, six years after the civil war Maul mcguire's was 1876, so about five years after Old Chicago. Stagecoach, 1880, so four years after Molly McGuire's. We even kind of talk about the respective presidential elections in each of those. Then, so Assassination of Jesse James by Coward Robert Ford was 1881, or at least that's when Jesse James was killed, was 1881, so a year after the events of Stagecoach. And then that's also the same year of the showdown at the OK Corral. I forget if we mentioned that in that episode. I think we did. Okay, so that happened at the same time. And then, so we look at Bury My Heart at Wounded Knee. The Wounded Knee Massacre is 1890, but it covers a lot of years. Uh, So you look at, say, the Dawes Act was 1887, which was the same year that Helen Keller had her new teacher in the film The Miracle Worker. So we talked about The Miracle Worker uh, way back in episode 49, if you go through, but just the idea that Annie Sullivan was teaching Helen Keller as a child at the same time the Dawes Act was being signed to kind of put everything kind of on the same page uh, there. And then just to kind of, we, we're trying to make a point of at least mentioning every president. So I wanted to at least get through the 1892 election here. So we've talked about everybody up through the 1880 election. 
So it, that's where you had uh, Garfield, but then Arthur ends up taking over when Garfield is assassinated. In 1884, Chester Arthur did not uh, get his own party's nomination. <laughs> so, and I, I forget who we, I think it was me, Fillmore. We'd seen that happen before where an incumbent president did not even get his own party's nomination. So it seems crazy nowadays, but that was more common back then. I, we've had people not run obviously, but the fact that Arthur didn't even, or did run and didn't get the nomination, it went to James Blaine. So Democratic governor of New York, Grover Cleveland, ends up beating Blaine and gets elected president. And then that's where you, so you famously get the, Cleveland's the only guy with two non-consecutive terms. So it goes Cleveland, right. Harrison, Cleveland. It's because in 88, Cle, uh, Benjamin Harrison beat Cleveland, even though Cleveland still won the popular vote, Harrison wins the electoral college basically by virtue of swinging New York. So Cleveland was governor of New York, wins in 84, loses in 88 because Harrison gets New York. And then when they when, then when right. they have a rematch in 1892, Cleveland gets New York back and the presidency. Yeah. And there was actually a third-party candidate that got uh, some like electoral votes in uh, 1882, but not enough. Even, even if uh, Harrison had gotten all of those electoral votes, Cleveland still beats him. Cleveland actually won pretty handily in 1892. So it's actually the uh, first of only two times that the uh, incumbent president lost in two consecutive presidential elections. Does that make sense? So you would have had right, yeah. Cleveland loses to Harrison, and then Harrison loses to Cleveland, but that's still the incumbent losing two elections in a row. Right. The only other time that happened was when Carter beat Ford, and then four years later, Reagan, Reagan beat Carter. Right. So it's only happened twice uh, <laughs> at time of recording. Oh, yeah, good point. <laughs> Next year is an election year. Oh, yeah, it could, it could happen again. That's true. Yeah, so I think that kind of puts us in a good place here to wrap up. And our scheduled film next time is a biopic, Edison the Man from 1940, starring Spencer Tracy. And a quick call to action if you want to help us out. Go to Apple Podcasts or wherever you can leave us a review and leave us a five-star review, please. And or share this podcast with a friend you think might like it. And don't hesitate to reach out to us with any questions, comments, or concerns. You can email me at simmons at tracknerds.com. <laughs>